making something beautiful is probably not so much controversial. So it's easier on your psyche. It's harder to do. Versus making something which is polarizing might be easier to do, but it's harder on your psyche. Welcome back to another episode of the Making Magic Podcast. I'm Sean Jay, your host, and I'm a professional magician, speaker, and 3D designer. And this is all about inspiring conversations with the movers, the shakers, the visionaries, and the makers, the wizards behind the curtain that make the magic for you. Now, if this is your first time tuning into the show, thank you so much for doing so. It really does mean a lot to me because I put a lot of hard work into each and every one of these episodes. Whether you're listening to the sound of my voice on any one of the popular podcast apps or on YouTube, hopefully you'll decide if you're a podcast type of person that you'll uh, follow the show. Follow me along for the ride and uh, leave a healthy review of the show. And if you're here on YouTube, feel free to give this show a thumbs up, comment below, turn on the notification bell, and subscribe. You guys know what to do because I'm all about getting your creative gears turning, and that's what this show is all about. Whether you feel like you're stuck with a certain thought pattern and you want to break out of your current thought pattern, if you feel boxed in and trying to be inspired to think in new ways, well, I've got some of the world's most creative people that are sharing their process with you on this show. So I hope you decide to join me on the journey and I'll be releasing episodes like every week now. So I hope you guys are enjoying this stuff. So with all that being said, let's learn a little bit more about our next guest. With over nearly three decades in the technology space, Pascal Finette has accrued all the experience you'd want in a high-level strategic advisor. He started on the net before there was even a web browser, and he learned his way through founding a series of technology startups and launched a consulting firm to support entrepreneurs scaling their own and built a portfolio investing in early-stage tech companies. Finette also held leadership positions at era-defining powerhouses such as Google, eBay, and Mozilla. And he was the faculty chair for entrepreneurship and open innovation at Singularity University. He's worn many hats and knows what needs to go on in the brain under each of them to lead effectively. So it's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you my next guest, Pascal Finette. Hey, Pascal, welcome to the Making Magic Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like we are old buddies by now. Yep. There's a little bit of a backstory to this, which I might think we should tell your listeners about because it's kind of funny. Okay, let's tell it. It, <laughs> it was a spooky magic thing that was kind of scary to me. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it was Halloween, right? So we had this like weird echo in our line as we recorded this on Halloween's day. Today's day post-Halloween, so by all means and measures, we should be in a much better state. We are in a much better state. There are, should be no poltergeists or anything messing with our recordings. We got it all sorted. So um, the audience already learned a little bit about you uh, in the intro that they uh, watched and listened to prior, but um, I always like to start off the show with a story. So to, to take our viewers and listeners from square one to where you are right mm -hmm. now. Let's start off with uh, a story about the very first 
uh, startup that you've mm -hmm. ever created? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this gets us back, and probably this dates me, but uh, this gets us back all the way to the first dot com boom. So we're talking late 1990s. And um, <clears throat> I was in college um, doing a, a degree in business and psychology, and the dot com boom happened around us. And all of my friends started building companies. And I was like, this is cool. I should do this myself. And, you know, probably in the, in the best spirit of your podcast, like the, the maker mentality in me took hold and was like, okay, let's build something. So, uh, I went out, um, I did what every good maker should do is, uh, you look what's out there and you get inspired by it. And you think about what could I contribute to the body of work, which is out there. Uh, and in my case, so I grew up in Germany, so this is uh, back in Berlin. Um, I saw in the United States, there were a lot of services popping up, doing something which today sounds ludicrous and idiotic, but back in the day, it was really cool. Uh, electronic greeting cards. So kind of like the predecessor to your TikTok um, or Instagram reels. Um, so we set up a, a, a company, a website uh, to do electronic greeting cards and... Um, uh, raised uh, $2 million on a single page business plan as a single founders. Those were the days where <laughs> you can reminisce in like that crazy time. Uh, and, you know, built a company and then also uh, destroyed the company very successfully when the dot-com boom came to an end. But that's uh, probably a story for another question. Right, right. That's like, um, it's like Las Vegas. It's like you tapped in, you got in. And didn't get out soon enough or something. That's exactly right. I think that's the point. Like, I, very good analogy. You're like, you need to know when you're hitting your peak at the slot machine and just, like, disappear and not take another drink from that nice waitress and, you know, like, pull yet another time on the slot machine, which, you know, clearly I did, which was a good learning. Right, right. You learned a lot from it. Uh, speaking of which... Uh... What exactly did you learn from it? What were the lessons that you took away from that? Man, there's so much to uh, to summarize, but I think um, surely a whole bunch of business lessons around getting your timing right and how do you actually build something? How do you like manage people? Um, probably mostly I learned because I was really young at the time. I was like, you know, in my very, very early 20s. And I probably mostly learned that um, I, quite frankly, I don't think I was at the right time in terms of my, my development, my maturity, the stuff I knew, um, by all means and measures, nobody should have ever given me $2 million who <laughs> built this company because I literally had no idea what I was doing. Um, and it was a crash course. I mean, I learned so much so quickly. And I think this, uh, it jives nicely with the other guests you have normally on your, uh, on your wonderful podcast. Uh, you know, in many ways, you just need to put yourself out there and try things out. And but I'm pretty sure also with your craft, there is a difference between putting yourself out there as a bloody amateur, not knowing what you're doing and expecting good results versus putting yourself out there, actually knowing what you're doing and, you know, like expecting good results of yourself. Um, and I think there's a different setting, you know, like in my case, because there were people, investors riding on me believing that I know what I'm doing when I clearly didn't. Uh, so I think I learned, really learned this. Like there is a difference when um, you jump into something, how mature, how experienced you are at something and what the end level of that product is. You just can't expect reasonably 
uh, to have a great product if you are, aren't skilled in your craft quite yet. At the same time, you need to put yourself out there and learn. So find ways to do that. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a careful balance because mm -hmm. like I've, I've heard stories about people that, that are very good at saying yes to things. And that can be uh, a superpower because they get opportunities that they would have never had before. But that can be a big downfall because if you say yes too much and you go in over your head, then that becomes a big problem really fast. Yeah. And I think this has a lot to do with like really thinking about knowing who you are and where you are in terms of your craft, your development, et cetera. And then also weighing this, I love the fact that you mentioned this, this balance point here, weighing this up with what are the, uh, the stakes in this game, right? Yeah. If I do it for myself, by all means, just do whatever you want. It's great. Like you can fail. It can be as shitty as, <laughs> as like that right. is an outcome as possible. If you do it for someone else, especially if they pay you for it, uh, and they have, you know, rightfully so expectations, make sure that you can actually deliver on those expectations. Yes. Yes. That was good to, to separate, to distinguish the two. And what was the, what was the reason why you created this company, this, this greeting company mm. out of all the, all the things you could have created with the, the magic of the dot-com boom. I mean, there's so many options. Like uh, for instance, I believe Elon did his whole thing with PayPal mm -hmm. during that dot-com nineties mm -hmm. boom time as well. And he, I guess he had reasons for that. But what was your reason for what you did? <laughs> I surely hope he had reasons for that. And he <laughs> surely was way more successful uh, at building um, uh, the company, which was originally, by the way, called x.com, which is an amazing domain. So if you ever get the domain with a single letter, like celebrate. Um, and then we, it, it merged with PayPal and, of course, became PayPal. So for me, the reason was um, uh, kind of twofold. One was very dumb, quite frankly. I was just looking for ideas. I didn't have a specific idea of my own. And I think again, like in the maker community and the artist community, sometimes we just go out and say, I don't have a specific idea for a song or, you know, a painting I want to make or something I want to create. So why don't I take something which exists and put my own spin on it? You know, and then you get like amazing cover songs maybe, right? So in my case, very similar. I didn't have a, an original idea per se. So I was looking at what could be my cover song in terms of like my business idea. And uh, the second thing, the reason why this appealed so much to me was this greeting card thing is a pretty, I mean, again, like it sounds silly today, like put yourself back 25 years. Um, uh, it, it had an interesting appeal to me because it was, uh, you make these cards and our cards weren't like, you know, like kitschy, you know, sunsets, uh, you know, I love your cards, but they're, they're kind of witty and they had fun and we played with humor and, you know, uh, we had a whole category, which was like our mature category, which isn't really like, you know, triple X mature, but it, it had like, it had like weird little like things. It was art in some ways. I mean, it was crappy art, make no mistake, but it was art and that really appealed to me. And then the other thing is just thinking about in what circumstances are people using this to express themselves? And that was fascinating to me too, because Again, like you use these, like normally you, you send a greeting card to say, um, hey, you know, happy birthday, or you send a greeting card to say like all the best from, you know, my vacation location. Um, but in our case, people use those for 
me more meaningful interactions actually to like enrich whatever they wanted to say. So it was fun. It was a fun, uh, it was a fun expression of creativity, I guess. Okay. An expression of creativity. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, now going through that and having that, you said this was about 25 years ago. <laughs> it's a while ago. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe that. Like I, I was around when there was ask Jeeves and, mm -hmm. and I remember Netscape. Good for you. I, <laughs> yeah. I grew up on Netscape, but it, according to your bio, you, you got into this whole tech thing before Netscape existed, right? Yeah. I was uh, at least before Netscape became like anything people would recognize. Yes. Uh, so again, like I'm dating myself here. Um, but I do remember very vividly, uh, kind of like one of my first visits to the internet. And, uh, we used a software called Gopher, which was kind of like the predecessor to the World Wide web. Um, and what Gopher did was, it was text-based, but it had the concept of hyperlinks. So this idea that you go from one thing to the next. And I remember so distinctly sitting, uh, in Berlin and, in an apartment and we dialed into this internet thing and uh, dialing into the uh, Library of Congress in the United States and just like wildly clicking around, basically following these red holes as we do today, right? It's like, yeah. today is just like the same thing. It just looks a little different. So uh, at least our habits haven't changed all that much. <laughs> That's true. Our, we're pretty simple creatures and our habits pretty much the same, clicking around, mm -hmm. swiping through Insta stories. It's it's all just curiosity based and the next absolutely shiny thing. So if you if we were to put Pascal in a time machine and we can go back in time, mm -hmm. knowing what you know right now, is there any advice that you can give your younger self to prevent you from making those mistakes that you made earlier on? You know, that's I, I think that's such an interesting question, actually. Um, because the question for me is, yes, I could answer this and, you know, like there's a million things I would tell my younger self about, like, here's all the stuff you shouldn't have done or you should do and like, you know, I pay more attention to, et cetera. But in many ways, I don't actually would want to do that. I don't actually think that it would be serving me really well to not make those mistakes. As painful as they are in the moment, I believe that they shape who you are. And they inform who you are and, you know, like build like everything, like all of my experience is based on all of those mistakes I made along the way. And, you know, like there's sometimes very painful moments of me cleaning up those mistakes. So in many ways, I actually don't want to go back and do that, but rather uh, have my younger self, like just go through the same like crap again <laughs> and deal with it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I think, um, uh, I think as I read this once in a Tim Ferriss book, um, where he talks about uh, this notion of like, if you're wavering about doing something, you know, like this, like, oh, should I do it? It's like, there's a risk involved here. I don't know if it works out. His point was like, if it doesn't kill you or destroy you in some like very weird, like actual way, you know, like you lose a limb or like you go bankrupt for the rest of your life or something, there's absolutely no reason not to do it. And I think that's that's ultimately really good advice. And again, like, you know, thinking about the maker community, like, just put your art out there. Like, yes, it will suck initially. And yes, you will fail. And yes, you will have issues with it. But you learn so much from that. You sure do. And I'm glad I'm glad you're one of the 
the people that understand the value of that, because there are some people that have very specific advice they, they would, they would say, but then, then there's a certain percentage and you're in that percentage. You just go, no, because if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be where I am today. And, you know, it would be a, an interesting exercise for people. And I often think of this, like, where the heck would I be? What would mm -hmm. I be doing with my life if I didn't have the experiences and fall down and get back up in the way that I did? It, it would probably change my entire course of my life. I probably wouldn't be doing what I am today. Yeah, and it's an interesting thought experiment, right? I think the um, uh, the other question I sometimes just like ponder about is, what if I would have done the things I did shy away from? You know, like clearly there were things in my life where I was like, nah, that's too crazy, or I don't really feel comfortable with that, or I'm too scared, simply too scared to do this. And, you know, every once in a while I'm like, huh, how would life have turned out if I would have taken that crazy trip or I would have put that product out, which, you know, like is rotting in my drawer or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, so, yeah, I think it goes both ways. And I, I've heard of a really interesting exercise that a person can do, which is uh, writing their own obituary or what goes mm -hmm. on their tombstone. And you do that mm -hmm. while you're alive. And not only does it make you contemplate mortality, which is pretty uh, powerful in, in itself, it makes you really put into perspective, like, what are your priorities in life and what do you want to be known for? And what do you want people to be saying about you once you're gone? And then it's like, wow, you understand a little more. It, puts, it brings you to the present like, man, I've got this limited time. It's mm -hmm. not unlimited. And what am I going to do with this limited time? And then... Yeah, th things start to shift and the gears start to turn. You know, I love that exercise. I actually love that exercise. And I've, um, you know, I've talked about this as, as advice many times. I think the reality of it is it goes back to this, this old like saying, and you might have heard this, is this the notion of like, you know, on your deathbed, uh, you will surely not say, I wish I would have taken that business meeting one more time, or I would have spent one more day in the office or whatever it is, right? Um, I, I think the reality is, is at least for me, uh, when you're in it, when you're actually living your life on the day-to-day -day basis, it is really, really hard to like truly zoom out. Because if I would truly zoom out, I, no disrespect, I would not do this interview here, but I would be out climbing or, you know, doing something, right? Um, and yet I chose, you know, clearly we, we chose to, to talk with each other. So, um, I do think though, it helps you on the bigger picture. So thinking really about, I think it's really hard to manage your life on the micro level because it's always this like, man, like, but there are things you, you need to do. They are like these micro moments, but on the bigger picture, hundred percent agree is like, you know, what do you actually want to do? Like with your life, you know, life is relatively short. So make sure that at least the majority of your actions lines up towards this thing you want to be, you enjoy, ultimately you enjoy. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. The micro and the macro, two ways of organizing it. And yeah, when you're in the moment, you can get really detailed, but don't forget to uh, look at the big picture. And yeah. So with the big picture that I'm sure you've mapped out many of your different creations and you've created 
certain things like the uh, the the newsletter that became wildly popular, the heretic newsletter that that's out there. Uh, what about something that you've recently created? I believe you're either working on or you have published right now a, a new book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, the book is definitely uh, a labor of love. You know, talking about like every maker, every creative will like understand this, even if you've never written a book. Um, it was a four-year research project. It's about a year to uh, from the moment you start like putting your first words on, you know, digital paper uh, to the moment it's like finally published. Uh, it is a journey. It is an interesting journey, and literally yesterday on halloween's day just after uh, we had our little glitch in our first uh first round on this thing here um i submitted the final draft of the manuscript so it's done it's locked in the only thing left is uh typos and grammar mistakes so that's it feels really good um and at the same time I, you know i had this conversation with my wife yesterday where she's like oh we should celebrate and i said like in many ways it felt anticlimactic and it's actually really interesting to hear from i'm curious to hear from you as a maker because yeah i felt like man i should like be like i should be so elated like that i did this and it's incredible this big thing of work like nine months of work so far already and like four years of research and yet i like submit and i'm like yeah okay next <laughs> you know, I'm, done. I'm just curious to hear from you on on like is this normal for a maker you know <laughs> because i'm like shit this feels weird the answer is yes, it is for me. It um, When I'm in the creative process or I'm making or building something, uh, I'm, I like, I'm impatient. I like to see instant results, uh, much like you, like we were discussing. And I like to push something out there just so I can move on with my life. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes that's not a realistic way of thinking. And it requires many revisions upon revisions, just like uh, this interview is round two revision, right. just to make sure, because I'm sure we're both perfectionists and we don't want to put uh, garbage work out there. So, um, yeah, it's the same thing with me. Like when I there, there are actually a number of things that I made that I'm using right now that I would still consider working prototypes hmm. simply because I don't feel like taking the time to finish it. And if it works, it works. But yes, uh, at the end of the journey, you think, yeah, I do want to celebrate, but how come I don't feel that way? Um, and I think that is exactly illustrates the whole point of the material world that we live in. We expect to gain happiness from completing things, from getting things. And then it's like, kind of like Christmas or kind of like when you open up an Amazon right. package, you're all excited when you see it, you open it up, you get it and you're like, yeah, that's great. And then you put it down and you're onto the next thing. Right. So yeah, I think it's, I think there's something to be said about like, once you finish this project, like understand. And I believe we, we were talking about this earlier, like understand, like what exactly did you just do here? Mm -hmm. What, what just remember that there was nothing before and then you nurtured this amazing thing along the way. You learned so much along the way. And now it's this finished, in your case, book. And it's like, wow, I actually made this. I magically conjured this from nothing or just from my mental space. And now here it is. So that's pretty impressive when you think about it. It makes you feel more grateful for the things that we do create and accomplish. I, 
Absolutely agree. And I think there's a, there's a really interesting part, which is really this allowing ourselves to pause and reflect and just saying like, as you said, I made this right. I, I just spent the hours and this gets me to another, another point, which I, you know, yesterday, again, like I had this conversation with my wife and she said like one thing, because I said, ultimately writing this book didn't actually feel that hard to me. You know, yes, it is a ton of work, but mm. at the end of the day, I think quite frankly, anybody and everybody can write a book. Like, I think it's totally within the space of anyone to write a book. Uh, I also think that anyone, anyone and everyone has something to say. So like anyone ha could write a book. And she made this interesting point that, um, so she, um, uh, published a best-selling book as well and, uh, went through a, uh, a writer's program to get there. And in this program, they pointed out to them that only about 2% of all authors finish their book, which is crazy. If you think about this, like one out of 50, um, and I think that's the really interesting point here, this notion that for us, again, like, you know, thinking about a maker, a creative, an artist, getting started is one side, which I think is super, super hard. And we can talk about that. But then also just like persevering through it and at least getting it to that shitty first draft version where you can put it out there. It doesn't need to be finished to your point, right? But it needs to be good enough that you can at least put it out there for someone else to look at, consume, play with, use it. And I think it's hard. I think it's actually like we should, we should, you know, every once in a while, we should actually sit down and like tap ourselves on the back and say, you know what? Even if it's a shitty end product, at least we put something out there. And the vast majority of people don't. Yeah. Well, it goes back to we are simple humans at our at our core biology and we like instant gratification and writing a book or building something or painting something whatever is not instant gratification mm -hmm. and i think we get excited because you get that i think correct me if i'm wrong but i believe there's like a dopamine hit that automatically happens when you start something brand new mm -hmm. and then you get it again once you finish it, but to get that string in between, that's where it requires a lot of like personal, like your own level of maturity and self-development to actually say, oh, I got it. I got to chip away at more on this book. I got to chip away a little more on this, this painting. I got to, I got to chip away a little bit more. And, and most people very easy to fall off the wagon. You're just like, yeah. now nah, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I you know, what comes up for me too is, um, there's this beautiful, um, poem, uh, uh, which was written by a Greek author, uh, to celebrate, uh, the Odyssey. So this like Greek, um, mythology about, you know, Odysseus going out there and, you know, having all these crazy adventures, like seeing, you know, one-eyed uh, monsters and the siren call and all that kind of stuff. And his goal, of course, of the Odyssey is uh, he sails to a place called Ithaca. And the poem essentially talks about, uh, and it's written from the perspective of Ithaca, of the city, of the, the destination. And Ithaca said, in the end, there's nothing left for Ithaca to give you other than the journey, which I really like as a concept, right? Because again, like, I think, I mean, surely you have this too in, in like in a maker spirit and every artist has this, 
yes, there is a part on like finishing it and building it and like having this, like putting a bow on it and having this like perfect product. But the real joy and the real learning happens on the journey, right? Like the, the, the countless hours you sit there and like filing down your little like physical model or like clicking, you know, like busier curves in your like 3D modeling software or like putting notes together, you know, or like trying this riff or in my case, like trying like, you know, writing a few more words and seeing how they like, how they like put, like put together as a full product. And I think that's the really interesting thing. Like it's really about the journey uh, for all of us. Yep. Yeah. And, and also too, what I like to do that I find this helpful, this, this kind of just helps motivate me. Like if, if a person looks, if you look back on like the timeline, for instance, of last year and the things that you did, you can always see patterns and you can always see how one thing led to the next. Mm -hmm. And it helps to reflect on that because you can like in the moment, for instance, like today you may encounter someone, you walk outside, you bump into somebody and you end up having a conversation, but then that person, to, you know, a year from now can be your, your boss or the, your next business partner. Absolutely. And then you realize like, oh, this was supposed to happen because of this and then this link to this and this link to this. And that was the whole journey. And then oftentimes I'll even realize, but dang, I was blind to that whole journey. Like I was rushing through the whole thing because I wanted the carrot at the end of the stick and I totally missed all the fun in between. Absolutely. I, I really very firmly believe in uh, ultimately karma. Um so to your point is like, Hey, all these things somehow connect and it's very often, most of the time, it's absolutely non visual to you. Like you just don't know in the moment, like to your point, like you might meet this like random person, you have coffee, like, you know, like you just have a quick chat while you're standing in line at, at Starbucks. And then, you know, like half a year later, it turns out this is going to be your boss or something, right. Or your collaborator or your client or something. But I also think that there's a, an interesting thing and it goes back to like Newtonian's physics, right? Like every force has an equal and opposed uh, reactive force, like, you know, counter force. Um, so I really fundamentally believe like whatever you put out there into the universe by and at large will come back the exact same way. And um, I heard this once, um, it was a, a speech by a, um, the business partner um, uh, of one of the biggest investors in the world. And, um, he was talking to young students and he says like, listen, like, this is all about like, what do you put out into the world and how it comes back to you? And he, he gives this simple example. He's like, so, uh, this is pre pandemic, of course. Um, so we're waiting for an elevator to come elevator comes out. It's packed with people. So you get into the elevator and now like three scenarios. Scenario number one is you get into the elevator and like, you're smiling. You're like, hello, everybody, you know, happy, you know, good day. What comes back? I mean, worst case, nobody reacts. Normally like you get good vibes back, right? Because we, we reciproc. Second option is you get in there. You're just like, you know, neutral. You don't look at anyone. Like you stare at your shoes or whatever, like nothing will happen. Third one is you get in there and you're just super grumpy. What comes back? Of course, grumpiness comes back, right? It's very simple, like physical law, like it's Newtonian physics, right? So like whatever you put out there will come back to you. Um, sometimes in a bit of a roundabout way to your point, uh, but I really fundamentally believe that. And I think again, like thinking about like creatives and makers and so on, like just put your work out there and, you know, like, be a good person and like try things out and 
be nice to people and it will pay off big time in the long run oh absolutely or, or sometimes in the short run but don't mm -hmm. expect that though. you have to be correct from whatever expectations uh, that you might have um yeah so b being that you clearly have for anybody that reads your bio you clearly uh, dipped into many industries you know but both uh startup and now you're you're a speaker and and a workshop facilitator and an author so out of all of these uh hats that you wear which one mm -hmm. would you think uh, fits you best which one do you put on most often <laughs> that's a good question um so uh let me answer this in two ways so i found and this probably is interesting it goes back to like literally my like relatively early youth when uh, my parents put me into like a theater class when I was in you know primary school and I did like, you know, shitty little theater and like I kept doing like theater and stand up comedy and like all kinds of stuff. And I really learned that I deeply enjoy um, being on a stage, entertaining, playing with an audience, giving them my energy, getting their energy back. It's just like something I really enjoy, which is interesting because. I'm definitely not an extrovert. Um, there's a, a term I came across a couple of years ago. They call people uh, ambiverts. So these are people who are very extroverted in certain circumstances, but then also have this like very introverted gene, uh, which I definitely have, where they need to recharge. So for me, if like you put me on a stage, I'm like, I love it. Uh, I'm getting off the stage. I will be like the, the awkward kid who sits in the corner of a room, you know, like sipping on their like drink on their own, not talking to anyone. That's me. Um, and I need that. That's fine. So uh, that is a hat I love, love, love wearing. But there's a second piece to this. And I think this goes back to uh, really doing some work, understanding what nurtures you, like what feeds you, what gives you energy. And the second really big part for me is I learned relatively early in my in my life and my career just by observing myself that I really enjoy helping others and enabling them to do their very best work. And that gives me so much like just enjoyment and energy and pleasure that uh, the hat I love wearing is working with other people. And, you know, I can do this through my business. I do it through mentorship. I do it a little bit through the newsletter, uh, The Heretic, um, which is more in a written way, but really helping other people to see the world a little different, believe a little bit more in themselves, um, maybe share some of the lessons I learned along the journey, or I have heard from others, which I feel, feel like are worth sharing. Um, and that's the, I think that's the second hat I love wearing. Mm. And is there any, any other hat that's there that you've been window shopping uh, in the near future where you're just like, you know, that's, this is something that I need to add to my tool set. It's really, it's a really funny story. You know, like I, there definitely is. Um, so I grew up uh, kind of at the beginning of the computer age, right? Like I grew up with like, like the first set of like personal computers at home and like, all oh, like we talked about this earlier, like beginnings of the internet. And then I worked at a whole bunch of tech companies um, in their very formative years. And, uh, you know, I've seen stuff like uh, we talked, you mentioned Netscape. So I worked at the company which or the organization which came after Netscape, Mozilla, um, and it was part of a team which built the Firefox web browser. Um, and uh, this is where it gets really interesting for me because I'm uh, shitty at a lot of things, say, for example, programming or building anything, you know, like woodworking, that kind of stuff. But I love doing it. 
So uh, talking about this, this other hat is I just really like doing things where like I'm involved with my hat at my hands. Um, and I'm okay with like being pretty crappy at it, you know, like my, uh, my DIY home projects and, you know, like that kind of stuff is like terrible, it's absolutely terrible, <laughs> but I enjoy doing it and it gives me pleasure. So, um, it also definitely something I think I just need to add a few more hours in terms of practice, right? It goes back to like Martin Gladwell's famous 10,000 hours of practice to get good at something. So. Um, yeah, really like in, in the vein of, of your podcast, really like the making component, I actually really enjoy, I'm not good at it, but I enjoy. Okay. Well, the, there's always, there's always ways that there's always lessons that, that making things can, can teach us. And then the, it can filter down into your, your areas of expertise. Just mm -hmm. like we, we talked about the act of making a book teaches you or, or making anything teaches you a lot about yourself teaches you a lot about patience, teaches you a lot about persistence, and it teaches you a lot about passion. So the three Ps, look at that. I'm coming up with my own speech right here. Um, <laughs> there you go. But like, but like really though, like if you don't have the passion for what you're, you're onto, good luck getting it finished. And if you don't have the persistence, same thing. And patience, same thing. You like got to be patient with yourself. Because um, like we're oftentimes way too hard on ourselves, especially when we're making something that we've never made before. I'm, I'm like guilty of that just about every time. Cause I expect, I assume, oh yeah, I can do this. Well, mm -hmm. I have to step back and go, I don't think I've ever done this before. So like, I can't expect uh, greatness quite yet, quite yet. Mm -hmm. So what about, what about your favorite creation then of the past? Would it hmm. be the newsletter? Was that in the works before everything else? That's a good question. I think the uh, the newsletter is actually an interesting uh, an interesting story and something I'm I think I'm pretty moderately proud of. I, I think it's uh, it definitely is an interesting uh, interesting output because to your point about persistence. So I started writing this newsletter ten years ago, and it originally started off as a uh, I was at Mozilla. I was consuming all this like information about what's going on in my industry and what are other people doing. And as I mentioned, I really enjoy helping other people on their path. So I originally started thinking about, you know what, like it would be actually interesting to like process my lessons learned and put them into a newsletter and just send it out to a few friends. Um, and it literally started out as a listserv. It started out as a, I have the email addresses of these like 80 people who are friends of mine, and I'm just going to send them essentially my processed thoughts. And by the way, it's an interesting one. And I think this is, by the way, I think it's an interesting uh, side learning uh, also for any maker out there or any artist out there. What I found so interesting with the newsletter is that for many, uh, in many cases, I actually write the newsletter more initially more for myself because it really helps me process. It really helps me like take a thought, say, for example, we have a conversation like ours today and you said something like your three piece, right? And I'm like, that was really insightful. Let me pause and reflect for a moment and just write it down for myself. And then, you know, I decided to share it with the world. And I think for a maker, it's the same thing, right? Like you come up with an idea of like, how do I create something? How do I 
like have this new like painting technique or this like new riff in my head if I want to create some music or like something physical, right? Just build it. Like just try it out. Like it's so much more tangible if you actually put it out there for mm -hmm. yourself, even if it's only for yourself. So I took that 80 people. These 80 people started like sending it to other people saying like, hey, you're like, I've got this guy, Pascal, he sends his newsletter. You should like read this thing. So I got these like random like requests of like people wanting to be part of that listserv. So I decided to put it on a newsletter platform so people can actually sign up. Um, and from there, it just grew and grew and grew and grew um, to, you know, like now it's 10 years there. It's, I think it's like 2000 posts or something. It's just crazy. And um, originally I posted way more frequently. Now I give myself a little bit of slack and post like once a week, but we up-leveled the game, so I now record it as a podcast as well. So for uh, those of us who enjoy listening to it and enjoy to my weird voice, uh, they can listen to it as a podcast. So it, it is definitely an interesting story, and it's uh, it's really fascinating because I guess similar to every maker, every once in a while I wake up one week and I'm like, I just don't want to write this thing. Like I have nothing to say. But yep. then, because there's this interesting pressure, right? Like I've done it for 10 years, like this, you know, tens of thousands of people are waiting, maybe, maybe waiting for me to actually write that goddamn thing. So I forced myself to do it. And I think that's an interesting lesson learned. And the the content of this newsletter, you said it was it was uh, lessons that you've learned. What, what specifically um, did you did you say it would resonate to uh, what type of people? Hmm. So the tagline of this thing is, and I came up like two years into the, uh, into this endeavor, I came up with this idea, like I call it daily therapeutics for entrepreneurs okay. and really what it is. Um, it's not necessarily, you don't need to be in like strictly speaking entrepreneur, you know, like someone who starts a company or something, but it's really for anyone who's making anything. Um, and it talks a lot about, uh, the trials and tribulations of leadership. Um, so if you have a team or even if you're on your own and just doing something, um, it talks a little bit about like, how do you approach product and customers? And it's kind of like all these like little gems of insights. I often learn from other people. So they're not like coming, popping out of my head. Uh, they're based on like just the brilliance of people like Sean Jay, you know, who like tells me something interesting in a conversation. And I'm like, that's so fascinating. Let me share this with the wider world, not just keep it as a gem for myself. Um, so it's really meant to for anyone and everybody who's creating something and being out there, um, you know, on their own, being part of a company, running their own company. So that's kind of like the the, the core audience, I think. Mm. Make sure you tag me at Sean J Magic. Cha Ching. And <laughs> there you go. And, um, yeah, so what you're describing here sounds like, uh, it's like a diary, basically. Mm -hmm. It's like your, your, your diary entries of, of breaking it down. Like this is, this is what happened today. And here's, here's the summary. And here's, like you said, I think it was only like three paragraphs on average. Mm -hmm. Short, it's very short and sweet condensed. Here's what happened. Here's what I went through. It's like any short story, right? I guess there's a, uh, preliminary uh, setup, laying the foundation, then there's the problem, then there's the solution to bring it all together. Yeah. And I think what you'll find is so the reason why I write this really short is, uh, first of all, I'm lazy. Uh, second, uh, it, it, I find it personally, um, when I get something which is longer than like, uh, you know, like a page, I just like, 
I'm already like, oh, I don't have time for this, you know? Yeah. Um, and what you, I think what you'll find with this, but quite frankly, this is true for like any type of art you put out there is it resonates with some people in some circumstances on a specific day, right? I've got people who are like, they send me an email after like I, I you know, send out more of my news that are saying like, oh my God, I needed to hear this this week, right? And then, you know, like I chat with them and they're like, yeah, you know, like the other 10 newsletters you put out there, they were interesting, but they didn't really like stick. But this one, like this was just, like at the right time, at the right moment. And I think that's so true with, if you put anything out there, you know, if it's a song or like a painting or like, you know, something physical, it will resonate with some people in some circumstances. So also be okay with the fact that 90% of the time for 90% of the people, it's just not the right thing. And that's okay, right? They might come back to it later. They might, you know, like circumstances change, et cetera. So be also okay with, like, you know, it fits for some, it doesn't fit for all. Yeah. And, and just the title alone of the newsletter, the, right. the heretic kind of invites that kind of like challenging mentality, that rebel, like, I just don't care. I've got things to say and I'm going to say them. And if you like them, great. If not, well, this isn't for you, which is, uh, which is nice because it's like, you're, it's nice to know that you're not trying to resonate with everybody. It, you don't care. Yeah. It's, you know, this is like your, your thing. You've got your voice. And that's why the people that do follow it are like really hooked because you're got that specific group of people. And I think it's important. I think that's, by the way, uh, in any endeavor you, you engage in, uh, I think it's important to find your voice and, and to stick to your guns and basically say like, this is who I am. This is what I have to say. This is my art. This is my work. Um, and be okay that you can't possibly, you know, make everybody like it. Now, that being said, I do believe that you can create uh, work, which has mass appeal, but then quite frankly, that work tends to be, because it has to be just mediocre. It's just like somewhere in the weird middle. Like I was just reflecting on this the other day when I was thinking about, um, you might remember this, there was a share song which came out, I don't know, like 15 years ago. It was like one of the first songs where they used auto-tune to like an, a massive extent. Um, uh, and that song like was designed to appeal to a the broadest possible audience globally, right? Like it, it was made to be appealing to a teenager in Manhattan, New York, as well as to a, uh, you know, middle-aged uh, manager in London, uh, as well as like a kid, like, you know, like, I don't know, a grandma in India. And okay. it worked. Like that song like was like number one. It sold billions of copies. But it's also a pretty shitty song. <laughs> it's just like so mediocre. It's so like it's catchy and everything, but there's nothing really interesting in that song. You know, like nothing where you're like, whoa, this is weird. Like this is a crazy riff or this is like there's a disharmony here. You know, like none of that. And, you know, like you need to make that choice. I mean, clearly, if you want to like appeal to a mass audience, by all means, by be my guest. But if you want to have an actual voice like that just doesn't work. That's an interesting, yeah, I, I, I think I know the song that you're referring to and yeah, there, there was, there was so much auto tune that T-Pain was probably like holding his ears, I think on that one. Right. 
And he was like, come on, guys, you could just just lay off a little bit, you know? (laughs) Right. That's that's a good point. Yeah. 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 It just depends on what your goals are. Correct. What are your goals? What are your goals? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. What about during during the during this creative process that you that you put into place with anything that you're working on? It's it's never going to go perfect 100 percent of the time. Mm -hmm. So if, if you can think, Pascal, of like a time where you were working on something. And it just was this big epic fail and just kind of blew up in your face. I always like to ask guests these questions and they're always kind of surprised and <laughs> takes, takes them back to a weird place, you know? Remember yeah, the- totally. And, uh, you know, in my case, like, I don't actually, I mean, yes, it's a weird place. Uh, but it, interesting enough, it's not with the benefit of hindsight, you know, in the moment, different story. But with the benefit of hindsight, um, I think you can either laugh about it or you can see the learnings in it and or you should see the learnings in it. Um, uh, so in my case, um, again, like my craft is business ultimately. So I remember uh, rather distinctly we um, uh, when I was at eBay. So I used to be at eBay uh, in 1999, 2000. So very early days at eBay. And I was responsible in uh, Germany uh, for our computers and gaming category. Uh, so one of the big categories on the, on the eBay marketplace, and we were running those as general managers. So we had like full authority about like whatever we want to do there. Um, so myself and a colleague, we came up with this, like we thought absolutely brilliant idea for a marketing campaign, which was pretty edgy, admittedly. And we were doing this on purpose. I mean, we were thinking about this very much on purpose because we knew the um, profile of our hardcore users, the people who spent the most money on the site, who come back over and over again. And I mean, you can imagine like computer and gaming, right? So gamers, right? Like people who mod their PCs and do all kinds of really crazy stuff. Like the kids who are today, well, you know, like now they're the parents of the kids, <laughs> but, but like the, the parents, the parents of the kids are like who are, who today on Twitch, right? And stream on Twitch. Um, so we did this like pretty edgy uh, campaign and to your earlier point about like, you need to find your voice and like, you know, like you need to be okay with like dissonance there. Um, It resonated super well with our core audience. They loved it. They were like, this is so cool. And eBay is cool. And then we got a whole bunch of like hate mail (laughs) from all the other people who are like, you know, what the heck is going on? Like, you know, I just come to your website to like buy a computer mouse. And now I'm seeing this like obscene, like weird gaming stuff. So, uh, you know, lo and behold, like within like, I don't know, like 12 hours after the campaign launched, and we got the first like flood of people who are like, what the heck? Uh, we find ourselves in the, in the office of our CEO, who rightfully so, of course, needs to think about the uh, well-being of the whole organization, right? Like he needs yeah. to think about everything. And he kind of like shouts at us. He's basically yelling at us, like, what this, like, what's wrong with you? Like, why do you do these things? And it's, you know, again, it was an interesting lesson where like, uh, and we stopped the campaign, like, because we didn't want to uh, ruffle the feathers too much. Um, but it was a really interesting campaign in, in, um, I think putting your, like sticking your neck out a little bit, like, like pushing, pushing the envelope a little bit, seeing what's possible. Uh, we did learn a lot from that campaign and later, we took some of those learnings and actually put them into slightly more compatible um, campaigns. So to still speak to our core audience, maybe not quite ruffle the feathers quite as much with all the other people. But um, I think there's something really valuable in uh, in being in there. Now, 
did I feel like shit when like my CEO yells at me and I'm like, oh my God, like I've got this great job and now like my job is over, my bonus is gone, you know, like I might get fired. Um, I overstepped, you know, like for weeks, you know, for weeks, our leadership team, like my CEO and like all this, like, you know, de deputies, they basically just like, every time they saw me, they had this like face of like hate, you know, like, <laughs> it's terrible. They were definitely not happy with me. Um, but again, like, you know, today I laugh about this, right? That's the other thing you learn. It's like in the moment, it feels terrible. Uh, a week after you still have like a little, like, a pit in your stomach a month later you're still like nah i should have probably not done that a year after that you're like oh that was actually quite funny and then you know today 20 years later i'm like just laughing my head off about you know the craziness we did back then so again i think the the lesson for me is just like you know, push the envelope a little bit like the world the world needs a little bit more color um so why not it does it does there's there's so much mediocre stuff and it's nice to yeah because you know you're talking about disruption and things so it's like to to shake things up a little bit is nice yeah. and, and we've all seen uh different ads and marketing campaigns that were pretty pretty whack to be mm -hmm. to be honest and but i think um i believe you mentioned like if it's done for the purpose of helping to 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 change the way people think like if it if it's so pol polarizing that it gets mm -hmm. people to start thinking differently and that was your right. goal in the first place then hey maybe there's something to that just yeah, like absolutely um, just like uh, uh two years ago you might remember this two years ago at the super bowl there was an ad from uh oatly uh which is one of these oat milk products and uh, as you might know, like oat milk went like through the roof in terms of consumption, like just like a super hip drink, et cetera. And Oatly is kind of like the pioneer of that. They've been doing this for a really long time and they have the wackiest CEO ever. So they buy an ad on the Super Bowl, which is the most expensive ad spot you can buy, bar none. Yep. And have the CEO himself stand in the field of oats um, with a keyboard singing off tune a song about Oatly. It was the weirdest thing. But here's the thing, right? So I'm a, I'm actually an oat milk drinker. I'm like an Oatly customer. I see this and I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like he just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> it's incredible. Right. And right. a ton, a ton of people who like watched the Super Bowl just looked at this and they were like, what the heck is going on? Right. But at the same time, and here's the thing. They talk about it and they will not forget it, right? The next time they go into the supermarket and they see like one of these like Oatly boxes on the shelf, they might, they might just think, you know what? That was this weird guy. I wonder what's inside of that thing. And maybe they, maybe just maybe they buy one, right? To your point, it's like you want to trigger an emotion. Like you want to get people to think about stuff, right? And I'm not saying it's saying you should do stuff which is like wildly repulsive or something, but like triggering a little bit of like a, a reaction, I think is always a good idea. And I mean, I, honestly, it goes back to like the most important, the best art uh, is always the one which like gets you to think a little bit. And it's like, what's going on here? Like, that's crazy. That's a really great example. I was not aware of that because I'm not a big uh, sports person, but I do believe that. I believe everything you're saying. I believe that it happened. I believe that that was uh, that was smart. I know. Um, I know. Was it Geico? 
I believe kind mm-hmm. of is one of like the modern pioneers of that because I remember seeing that's how I remember it. I remember seeing tons of these really weird off like Geico ads with animals, yep. personification of animals. And they kind of, you know, I, I would say like they're the mo- modern pioneers. It's like mm-hmm. uh, what Seth Godin says about a purple cow. You know, what the heck is the purple cow? And it's just something that's just like sticks out like a sore thumb. And it's just like weird enough or just offensive mm-hmm. enough to make you take interest or or change. And then another great example is uh, an artist I recently discovered, uh, which you may or may not be aware of. This guy, Beeple. So oh, yeah, of course. So he's like sold his stuff for like billions. Well, not billions, but tens of millions of dollars uh, as an NFT. Yeah. He's extreme, like what we're talking about to the extreme mm-hmm. doesn't give to, you know, what mm-hmm. anything or anybody. And he's like, this is it. And, and I, th- I think why it resonates is because he's doing like this whole kit bashing of taking some famous, uh, controversial person's head and putting it on this body. And then it's like turning it into this whole fantasy scene that actually still somehow connects with what industry they're in or what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's very thought provoking, often repulsive, often offensive, but he's making a statement and a lot of people notice. Yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting, you know, while you were saying this, uh, what was going through my head, I was thinking about, you know, if you think about art or you think about, particularly if you think about making something, like a product, whatever it is, like, you know, a physical product, software, a prop. Um, I think this, largely speaking, there's only two ways you can make them if you want to make them really good. Either they're edgy. So there's this, what we talked about, like there's this very deliberate edge to it. Or you make them so beautiful, so perfect, that they're just pieces of beauty, right? They're just like, they're just perfect. And it's, it's interesting that there's a, uh, a German designer, Dieter Rams, who used to be uh, the head designer of Brown. Um, he created this very specific aesthetic, um, which can be summarized. He has got this like manifesto, design manifesto. And uh, one of the main tenets of that manifesto is that he wants to create things which are less but better. So this whole idea of like, how do I cut stuff away and away and away and away, but make it at the same time, make it better and better and better. And um, uh, John, Jonathan Ith, the head designer of Apple, who created this Apple aesthetic we most of us love these days, I was definitely deeply influenced by Dieter Rams. And this goes back to the second point, right? Like you make something which is just so magical, so beautiful, so perfect that it's just done. And I think those are your two options. And anything in between is kind of like just meh. <laughs> so yeah, you know, like make a choice and then push yourself to like get really good at making this like just right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. I don't have anything to add to that outside of it's probably harder to make the beautiful, perfect thing because in order to get everybody's approval and agreement that it's perfection, requires a lot of refining whereas i think people can make polarizing or or stand out art relatively easy and the reason why it's so hard for them is because they're too busy censoring themselves as they're working on the project that's an interesting thought yeah 
I tell you, uh, I tell you a funny story on the beautiful thing. Um, a friend of mine, when I, uh, when I was in college, I, um, I worked at a computer shop and uh, you know, there was another person working there and, um, uh, he was, a uh, uh, he was just jobbing there because his real world was, um, as a light designer. So he did like stage design for like big shows and so on. Um, and he got to work with, and he told me this story. He got to work with Brian Eno, um, this incredible music producer, uh, singer, songwriter, etc. And, uh, it's a true story. So Mercedes Benz, the car manufacturer commissioned Brian Eno to create a, uh, a visual stage. Uh, for the unveil of one of their new cars at one of the big car shows. Hmm. So they pay him a ton of money. He builds this like stage before they, um, you know, roll it out uh, to the public. It, it gets shown, of course, to the exec executives at Mercedes-Benz. And Brian Eno is, is just in, an incredibly talented artist. Um, and my friend got to do work with him on the, on the light stage. So uh, he was part of that effort. So they present it to the uh, executive team over at Mercedes-Benz. They see it and it was so beautiful and so perfect that they decided not to show it. They were like, we're not going to show this at the uh, car show. Brian Eno, we're still paying you the money for it, but we're going to put it into storage because it is so beautiful that it will have people not see the car. Oh, wow. Right? That's weird. That's That's a... It's like, yeah. Well, and what did he respond? He's like, "Thanks for the money," but yeah, like... I guess. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. They literally paid them the full money and never showed it. To the best of you know my friend's knowledge, they never ever showed the work, which is just too perfect. It was just too beautiful. But I think mission accomplished, right? And again, like to your point, I think it's it's really interesting. I, I think the um, making something beautiful is probably not so much controversial. So it's easier on your psyche. It's harder to do. Whereas making something which is polarizing might be easier to do, but it's harder on your psyche. Correct. That is exactly what I was trying to say, but you captured that a little better. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's right. That's right. So Pascal, if, if we were to, if we were to switch gears a little bit and mm -hmm. ask, uh, I would I'd like to ask you this. Uh, the previous question was, what about an epic fail? You were working on something that blew up on your face and you told that story very well. What about something that you have, you were working on and it just was an accident and it was like a happy accident. And then it turned out to be this amazing, beautiful thing because sometimes that happens. We're tinkering with little projects and then one of them is just like, boom. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, quite frankly, I think that happens more often than uh, we want to admit. Um, even in like, if you think about scientific discovery, a lot of the like classic cases of scientific discovery was someone trying something weird and it's like, boom, we discovered a new element or, you know, like created this like new insight or whatever it is. Right. Um, so I, definitely. And in my case, I would make the first argument I would make is, uh, the part the, the heretic, the newsletter. And we talked about this already, uh, but even the book in many ways is a, uh, is a similar story where the book started for me, not as sitting down and saying, I want to write a book. Here's the topic. You know, but I started talking to people. This is um, uh, just before the pandemic. I started talking to people about innovation and disruption and their personal stories about this. And 
a couple of things happened. One is I was just chatting with them because I was just curious about what their personal perspectives are. And two things happened. One is I interviewed a gentleman called Andy Billings who works at Electronic Arts. And um, he gave me this interesting insight. He said, you know, Pascal, when you talk to the people on the front lines of innovation and disruption, the people who are making stuff, they will tell you that what they're doing and the way it's happening has nothing to do with what you can write, read in the books. And I thought it was really interesting. I was like, it's fascinating as an insight, especially as I've re read most of these like, you know, seminal books in my category. And I think he's right. I think like it's much messier, as you know, like from the making, you know, it's like one thing to think about how do I like create something? It's a whole different thing to let then like take, you know, a saw and glue and, you know, whatever, and, you know, a file and like actually make it. Um, so that was number one. And that got me thinking about, could someone write the book for the people on the front lines? And the second one was, I think like, I don't know, six, seven of those conversations in, and I scheduled them like every week. I had coffee with people and I, I realized that these conversations are really fascinating and not just for me. I was like, I wish other people could listen to this now. I wish other people could not just hear the version I have to say about, you know, what this person in front of me says, but I wish they could listen to them themselves because this person is brilliant. Um, so I started putting very similar to you. I started putting a mic into their faces and said, let's record this. And, you know, like out of that, again, came, uh, we created a, a podcast out of there, uh, which we call Disrupt Disruption. Um, and then the second one was, uh, you know, as I was doing this and thinking about this and setting up the podcast, I was like, it would be actually interesting to write down the patterns we can see across all of those responses. Of course, what all of these people say, and that then became the book. So the book was never really planned. It just emerged out of like doing something, which I think, you know, like, again, like talking about lessons learned is, yeah, put yourself out there and start doing things like often, not necessarily with a specific aim, it's just like do them because they're interesting. And then you'll see interesting things coming out of it uh, along the line. Have host your own little many, many experiments just because, just because, just, mm -hmm. just for the sake of curiosity, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah. And fun. Quite frankly, I mean, it's, it's just insane amounts of fun, you know? And uh, it's kind of funny because I, I believe, you know, for me personally, it doesn't feel like work. Um, I talk to, you know, friends and people and they're always like, oh my God, you do so many things. So, you know, like, how do you have the time to do like, you know, like write this newsletter, write the podcast, like write another newsletter, like build a company, like run these like workshops, like talk at, you know, whatever. Right. And I always tell people like, I don't actually see it that way. It doesn't feel that way to me. I mean, I know that it's a lot of work because I, I know that I'm like busy, no question, right? I'm not sitting on the beach and like drinking pina coladas, but it doesn't feel that way. And it doesn't feel that way because it's interesting. And I think if you fill your day with stuff which interests you, just days are just like passing by and they're like, you like, it doesn't even feel like work. That is exactly why I am a big proponent of people they must in some way follow their passion or passions mm -hmm. and not suppress them and not mute it out because I've seen it time and time again with people in my field, people in the creative arts field, 
nine times out of 10, uh, their parents stifle the interest and they say, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a lawyer. I don't care what you have to say. This is what mom and dad are telling you to do. And guess what? They live a whole life full of regrets and then they're 50, 60 years old. They have this midlife crisis and they go, man, right. I wish I would have, what would have happened if I would have tried doing X, Y, and Z? And then that just sits with them and it's so like psychologically unhealthy yeah. to suppress something that's giving you so much joy. So yeah, what guys, what me and Pascal are saying is like, stop suppressing that, like start tinkering, start playing. Mm -hmm. And you might find a stroke of genius in one of those things that you're tinkering with. That could be your next book, your next talk, your next company, right? Um, right. I've heard a lot of stories about startups where, where you have guys in their dorm room tinkering around with the computer and they're like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we had a platform that could do this or solve this problem or connect people in this way? And there you go with Facebook and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I would add to this. I, I love this, Sean. And I think I want to add to this, um, even if it doesn't pan out, it's still better. I, you know, like I, the one piece of advice I always have, like where I feel like I'm, I'm always like a little twitchy when people say like, follow your passion, right? Like your passion is the, is the right thing, which absolutely, please, please, please indulge in your passions. At the same time, you know, like I, uh, you know, one of my passions was um, uh, I, I used to run a lot. And I really enjoyed it. And I was like somewhat good at it. I could never, ever make a career out of this, right? Uh, you know, I know people who like to play the guitar and they play decent. They can never, ever play on a big stage. But there's a passion for them. They love playing the guitar. By all means, do it. Like, don't expect it. It doesn't necessarily need to be your job, right? That's fine. But don't, to your point, Sean, I love this. Like, don't suppress this by just saying, I'm not good at the guitar. I like playing the guitar. I'm not good at it, so I will not do it. That's terrible. Right. Right? Like, it's terrible. And as you said, yes, maybe you might stumble across something which gets you to a career path, but that shouldn't be the end goal. Like, it might happen. Great. Good for you. Like, you know, Sean, clearly with your prop making, like, that happened. Uh, in my case, it happened. But it's also totally fine to, like, spend just your free time doing crazy stuff, enjoying it. That that's, that's a good point to discern between, between the two. And that, that's what I was trying to say, but it didn't come out that way. But yeah, yeah. People, yeah. Just, just ch change your expectations and just use it as a fun little experiment and just see what happens. Right. Of course, people have to have ways to make an income and live a stable life. I'm, uh, I'm not suggesting instability. But instability is good sometimes, but one could argue uh, that that's the, what goes with the whole disruption thing, like mm -hmm. like crazy ads and making people f a little unstable. But yep. yeah, when, when it comes to your life, of course, that is a good point. And thank you for for clarifying. So I know we we talked about in the very beginning of this interview, like what was your initial impetus to create that? that card company, but I'd like to go even deeper to the core with these, la with these, uh, some of these last three questions here. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to be this disruptor that you are and who inspired you to be in the field that you're in? And then who do you look up to in this mm -hmm. disruption innovation space? Uh, three excellent questions, Sean. 
Um, it's actually a really interesting question to think about, like, why am I the person I am? Like, what made that? Yeah. And I think there's surely there's points alongside my way, like my career, uh, my life, where I could say, well, this happened. And I can tell you in a minute about, like, uh, the inspiration part, like, in terms of people. Uh, I definitely have a person to, to name there. But uh, going one step earlier, it is actually like, how did I actually even get there? I wonder if there's a, I, I wonder about this quite a bit. And I don't have a really good answer to this. I think there's a little bit of like a, a nature and nurture thing. So I think there might be something which is, I don't know, genetic. Uh, there might be something which is like your early childhood upbringing, you know, like what my parents did with me, et cetera. But I do remember very distinctly that when I was in kindergarten, um, uh, you know, you ultimately have like these like three groups of people, largely speaking, like there's the popular crowd, there's the like the weird in between crowd, and then you've got the weird kids like who are sitting in the freaks and geeks, right? <laughs> who are sitting in the corner of the room and nobody wants to do anything with that, to do with them. Yeah, hey, absolutely. And it's interesting because I, so I was never in the popular crowd. I was always in the in-between crowd. I was always this like, you know, like I kind of like just get by, it's fine. Um, but I had this passion for the kids who were in the Freaks and Geeks crowd because I found them more interesting. I found them really fascinating because they did interesting stuff. They talked differently. They behaved differently. They played different games. So I, I was always mingling with them. And then I guess this is like, we talked about this earlier, is like my, my natural inclination to like want to see people succeed and thrive i was also the kid who like stood up for them right like when the popular kids came and like teased them you know like bullied them a little bit right i was the kid who was like standing in front of them it's like like go away and like you know took the punches uh so in many ways this was in me at least since very early childhood um and then i think it got nurtured and i wonder again like how much of that is actually us maybe um unknowingly seeking this out versus it just happens to be. So I give you a simple example. I mentioned um, a job I did when I was in college was at this computer company. And this computer company was run uh, by uh, a gentleman called Archibald Hollitz, uh, who I like really consider a mentor of mine because he was like, he was this rebel in the computer industry, right? He was like, did things differently. He ran his shops differently. He did this like really crazy marketing stuff and so on. And I credit him a lot with who I am as an as a more adult person because I looked up to him and I I, I was like I want to be like this guy you know I want to be like Archie I want to like this is like something I look up to like I want to I want to be so and I again like I wonder did I choose working for this company because the you know initially of course I saw his creation and wanted to be part of his creation and then ultimately got to know the creator. Um, or was it just circumstance? And I think, uh, you know, probably not, it wasn't, I remember that it wasn't like me saying, oh, I want to work for this guy in this company because of this reason. Right. It was more like, oh, here's a job. I can work in a computer company and, you know, make some money and have fun doing so. But there surely was an attraction for me to say, I want to work for this company, not that company. Um, and then it goes back to like, the third part of your question, like where like people I look up to, um, again, I'm, I'm personally, I'm really drawn to these people who are more the rebels who are like doing things differently, who are pushing envelopes. Um, 
I mean, it's overly cliched, but I think, you know, Steve Jobs clearly in the computer industry and the industry I was part of, um, is, is a giant, uh, was a giant, unfortunately. Um, and clearly there's many, many flaws he had, but just the, the way he created and what he created is just so impressive and so interesting and so opinionated, um, you can't take that away from him. And I think, you know, he's clearly one of the most interesting leaders we had for, you know, decades and decades to come. Uh, so, you know, that is someone who like pops into my head just very, very naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Steve was, Steve was a weird one, but, but, you know, look at what he created. Look mm -hmm. at, look at the, look at the ripple effect and the ripple just goes on and on and That's on right. and on why? Because he's not doing everything like everybody else. Correct. And that's just, that's just the, um, yeah, it, Steve Jobs is like the exemplar of everything we just talked about polarizing to X percent, other percent love him, creates amazing things and doesn't care what other people think about what these things are and just keeps marching forward. Great, great example. So, as we as we wrap everything up here, Pascal, um, are there any are there any resources that you can recommend to uh, my viewers and listeners mm -hmm. uh, if they're interested in just taking their their state of being outside of this box that they're in? They want to get their creative gears turning and they want to be more disruptive with their work or business. What would you recommend uh, people start with? I personally love there's a a book by an author called Stephen Pressfield. Um, he writes, normally he writes novels. Um, he wrote, uh, Vedra Bands, for example, which is a best-selling novel, et cetera. And, um, he wrote a bigger book called the war of art. Um, and that's a, uh, it's of course a play on the art of war, right? Like the classic Japanese text. And he, uh, this, this bigger book is about the creative struggle, uh, of any creative. I really like this book, but he wrote an even better book, which is called Do the Work, which is kind of like the distilled version. And you read it within like 90 minutes, a tiny little book, costs you like eight bucks or something on Amazon. And um, it's a book about the creative struggle. It's a book about doing the work and what it takes. And he talks a lot about the biggest challenge. And we talked about this. We touched upon this earlier. The biggest challenge in any endeavor is uh, resistance, right? Like this this inertia of like getting your shit together and just doing those first steps and just like keep doing it. And the book deals with that. And it's a beautiful, beautiful reminder. I read this book every six months or so just as a kick in my butt when, you know, and I feel like resistance building up again and I'm like, ah, I'm getting a little lazy here or a little like hesitant to like try things out. I read this book and I'm like, ah, this is a good, a good snap, a good reminder. Um, there's a quote in there, which I really love, which is, um, on the field of the self stand a knight and a dragon. You are the knight, resistance is the dragon. So it's a good reminder to slay that dragon uh, every once in a while. So that is the one, like, honestly, I mean, there's so many good resources. Of course, you know, like listen to all of your podcast episodes. Um, but there's so many good resources out there. But this little book is like, a, for me, is a gem. Mm. And the name one more time. The book is called Do the Work. Uh, the author is Stephen Pressfield. Do the Work by Stephen Pressfield and then The War of Art. Both this is his bigger book, indeed. 
tiny little, oh, the, that's the bigger one. The mm-hmm. Duke work is the small one. So if that uh, interests any of my viewers and listeners, check that out. Links to that will be in the show notes and in the description below. And lastly, I'm just going to leave the floor open to you, Pascal, just to let our listeners and viewers know where they can find more about you. Absolutely. So uh, for better or worse, I'm very easy to find uh, because my name is truly unique, weirdly. Uh, so if you literally Google Pascal Finette, uh, you will find me everywhere. It's like I own my Google search results. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> but by circumstance, because my my name is unique. Uh, so uh, Google me, you'll find a ton of stuff. Um, if you're interested in newsletter, which might be the most appropriate way for you to get uh, a taste of my world, um, it's at theheretic.org. Um, by all means, please do sign up. Um, it's a fun journey. Be part of that community. Um, and if there's ever anything I can do for any of your listeners, uh, Sean, just send me an email. I'm always happy to help people doing interesting stuff. Okay. And that the email is? The email is, there's many, many emails. The easiest is pascal at finet.com. So my first name at my last name.com, super easy to find. Uh, it's literally also on the website, which is the interesting thing. So uh, I'm I'm one of those weirdos who actually gives away their emails. So by all means, send me an email. Okay. Well, this has been a weird, wild, and wonderful conversation filled with a lot of things that expanded my mind and got my creative gears turning like the ones behind my head there. I hope that was uh, a value to you guys, whether you're watching or listening. And if you're uh, listening to the sound of our voice on any one of the popular podcast apps, hopefully you'll decide to follow me along for the journey, follow the show and uh, drop a review and share your comments. Or if you're just watching this on YouTube, feel free to like, comment, hit that notification bell and subscribe. You guys know what to do so we can get more of this mind expanding content. So uh, Pascal, I thank you for being a part of another episode of the Making Magic podcast. And we'll see you guys in the next one.